Hello and welcome to This Way Up. In this series, I talk to a number of leading women in the creative industry, talking specifically about the good, the bad and the ugly of their careers. Today's episode features the amazing Sophie Williams. For those who don't know Sophie, she is a TED speaker, a leading anti-racism advocate and the author of two great books. The first, Anti-Racist Ally, is an introduction to allyship at home, work and in the community and was published in October of last year. And just this week, I'm very excited to say that she's just released her latest book, Millennial Black. The book is the ultimate guide to the workplace for black women. It offers empowering, practical and comprehensive advice for black women to build a career. But not only that, it has inspiring interviews from the likes of June Sarpong, Aja Barber, Naomi Aki and Monroe Bergdorf. I feel extremely lucky to have recorded Sophie's story. As you can imagine, she's one hell of a busy lady and this episode brings you not only a great insight into her views, but also how she got to where she is today. From her challenging time as a drama student and the all too familiar experience of being the only black person for the majority of her time at uni, to randomly falling into the world of advertising and to writing her book, Anti-Racist Ally, in just nine days after a fateful social host that threw her at the heart of an important debate. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that I love nothing more than to go deep. And so I could not be more proud of this episode. And it's probably one of the deepest, most emotional and important discussion I've had in a long time. So let's go straight to it as Sophie's story is so inspirational. Without further ado, this is Sophie Williams and this is This Way Up. Sophie, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, as usual, I always like to sort of start from the very beginning of your life. Okay, cool. So yeah, so I grew up in Birmingham and um, your listeners obviously don't know me yet, but a lot of the work that I do is around race and diversity and inclusion. And as a mixed race black woman, um, I think I had a really interesting early uh, diversity exposure because uh, the school that I went to, the area that I lived in, um, especially for young people, was primarily Asian. And so whilst I was um, an underrepresented group in my community, it wasn't because, um, especially in my school, it wasn't because white people were the majority there. It was just because we had a different uh, mix to what we generally think of when we think of um, what the UK is racially made up of. Um yeah, uh, went to school, went to a girls' school, went to the biggest single-sex school in Europe. Um, so I think, wow. yeah, and I think that is potentially like an influencing factor in ways that I don't even understand yet. Um, and yeah, like I said, I then ended up going to university in Leeds where I studied theatre and performance. And the reason I went to that university was that... Um, Leeds University had, when I went, just bought a drama school. Um, so that was a really established um, campus institution called Breton Hall. And so that had all of the kudos of a big, um, well-known drama school. But uh, unlike like a RADA or a Central or a LIPA, you graduated with a degree um, whereas normally you graduate drama school with having gone to drama school and being a really well-trained actor. This had that sort of acting side, but also the theory side, which meant you graduated with a BA. And that was really important to me because I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I wanted to keep those options open by having that sort of more formalised um, qualification outcome. Mm. And can you tell me why you chose to go into the world of drama? I don't know, really. I think it's always been fun I think I've never really thought of myself <laughs> as a very creative person but I really liked um reading scripts and I really liked you know just like exploring other people's world and other people's lives and I think that seemed like really I don't think I ever really seriously considered doing anything else other than um theatre as my degree right 
That's interesting because I was going to ask you later on as we go through your career. It seems to me just two things. It's like you exude a lot of confidence, but also um, your ability to use words in such a great way to really express yourself. Uh, I was wondering just now whether that's thanks to university or were you actually, you always had that from, from childhood? I think I've always enjoyed writing. I've always enjoyed like, mm. I guess, writing stories and things like that. And for a long, I had a really um, not a great time at university. I was the only um, black person for the majority of my time there. It's a really small campus. Um, there's lots and lots of things that I found quite unpleasant. And I thought for a long time, I just wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't, I wish right. I hadn't done the things I really wanted to do, which is to get this um, theatre degree. Um, but I think now... Now that I'm 33, looking back, mm. so much of what I can do now, I think is because of that foundation, that ability mm. to sort of go and speak, go and stand on a stage and say, here's the thing that I'm here to say to you. Here's the thing that I want to tell you. Here's what I'm here to embody. I think looking mm. at it with some distance, that's been really valuable, but it felt really uncomfortable at the time. Can you tell me a bit more about that? What was these incidents that happened at university? Yeah, I mean, I guess there weren't particular incidents. It's just, it's just you know the feeling. And I think whatever your intersections are, most people know the feeling of being the only person like them in a space. Mm. And when you're the only person like you, whether that's your race, whether that's your gender, your sexuality, sort of whatever that is, Whenever there's something that's difficult or uncomfortable or a conversation to be had, all eyes turn to you and you're suddenly mm. the spokesperson for an entire group, even though you know that your lived experience doesn't match that entire group. And so I think I was just in a lot of uncomfortable scenarios. And I think also sure. when I was in that space, I think, and I would need to fact check this, I think the first um, RSC black actress was cast to play Juliet maybe in right. like the end of my time there and so I was there and I was doing this work and I was learning these skills and I was doing it with the expectation that I would never get to do the kind of the kind of work that I wanted to do because mm. people like me weren't seen in those spaces that's not what how we were cast and so I was cast yeah as the black person as a black friend as sort of whatever those sort of um slightly less developed yeah less developed more stereotypical roles were and so yeah it was hard for me and has been hard for me until very recently like in the last year or two to see the value that came from that uh that degree and that work yeah I can imagine I can really see how tough as an experience it was and just I mean, it's a good thing that you can now, <laughs> with a bit of step back, see how actually there's some value into that course. But I can imagine how tough it must have been. And and when you sort of graduated, where did you go next? Do you think you would go into acting or what, what came into your mind? Yeah. So when I graduated, like I didn't, like I disliked my university experience so much that I didn't even go to my graduation. That didn't seem like something that did I wanted. Did you not? No, that just didn't seem like something I wanted to be wow. a part of. Like I was finished. Uh, my birthday is very uh, late in the school year. So, like, I was 20 mm. when I graduated from university. I didn't want to go to the graduation. Oh, that's quite young. Yeah. Um, and so I was just like, okay, I'm done with that. But what I had started doing was I had got um, – do I think of it as my first proper job? Maybe not. But I'd got I'd got a job. And so while I was at uni – I was working for the union and I was running um, some club nights. So, Oh, cool. Yeah. So I started running like the big Friday night uni night. That's not well expressed, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> like the big Friday you know, night club exactly night for the uni. Um, and that led, and that was like really like cheesy poppy music, but it was a real revenue driver for the, for the, uni for the union overall. And I sort of wasn't oh, ingrained enough in sort of the financial side of things to understand what that meant. But it meant, in my mind at the time, that if I could get people into that club night, I could do more things that I wanted to do. 
so yeah, not being really ingrained in sort of the financial management of things at that point, I didn't really know what that meant. But I, I sort of could reconcile it with if I could get enough people to go to this club night, then I could do more things that I really enjoyed. And so making that successful meant that I could run like an indie night on a Thursday night and sort of do that kind of thing. And so I guess my first foray into um, having maybe like a grown-up job was doing these um, mm-hmm. these club night pieces of work for the university, which I did when I was in my third year. I then got a place at Central School of, of Speech and Drama um, to do a PGCE mm. course, so to, tr- so to train and qualify to be a drama teacher. Um, but I was really enjoying mm. working in events and... I think there's lots of transferable skills, like whether you're putting on a play or whether you're putting on a club night, the doors are going to open at eight o'clock and you need to be ready. Um, Yeah. And so... That's brilliant. Yeah. And so I deferred for a year to stay um, doing events work. Right. There's quite a buzz from it, isn't it? Just how many people are sort of turning up the tickets from it. Were you able to make quite a bit of money out of it? Or was just just the buzz of it all? No, absolutely not. So because I was um, employed by the uni, I wasn't um, an uh, I wasn't an independent like events promoter at that point. And so I was right. Like, if if five people came or if five thousand people came, I got paid the same. But it was just like a really fun thing to be a part of. Like if you're eighteen and you're like running a pretty cool um if you're running like a series of pretty cool club nights then you sort of get some kudos from that so it wasn't especially well paid and it wasn't sort of paid in proportion to um success but it sort of had side benefits of being like oh yeah that's my club night which is pretty cool when you're like a teenager yeah completely very cool and what's interesting because I know about your career is that you you then go into the world of advertising but I bet that you learned quite a few skills doing that as an event promoter. Yeah, I think so. So I didn't stay at the uni. So I deferred a year to stay doing that job at the uni. And then um, mm-hmm. in Leeds, there are like three pretty cool clubs called the Faversham, the Hi-Fi Club and Wire. And they were looking for a new like events person. So I ended up leaving the uni and going there. And that was really, um, I guess, a mixture of skills that I use still. So that was like finding the best talent. So like I was promoting mm. some nights myself, but I was also finding the best people who are the most sort of culturally connected people on the scene at that point to mm. um, put on new nights and, you know, you know, get the best artwork and reach the communities that we needed to reach to engage with the, with the night itself. And so, yeah, I think there's probably a huge crossover, but again, it's not some, I think this is going to come up a lot. It's not something that I <laughs> recognised as being useful or transferable no, until like now, which is like 12 years later. I'm like, oh yeah, maybe that does fit together. <laughs> but that's the beauty of being in your 30s, right? Because you're able to sort of take a step back and go, actually, those times, whether they were difficult or great, uh, you know, are, are great for our bringing isn't it yeah they become part of a a singular story that we can't tell in the moment necessarily so how long did you run those events for um I guess I did it at the uni for maybe like a year and a half and then I went to um those nightclubs outside of the uni and did that for about two years I think something like that um and then I moved to Mm. Paris to become an English teacher oh wow (laughs) Paris yeah how was your French at the time when you landed in Paris oh not good and still now not so good it's probably my biggest regret <laughs> in life but you know <laughs> you live in so tell me what that was like I was doing this job I was working in events I didn't really love it it was doing um, office work all day whether that's like organizing the marketing or like figuring out how we get people in the door or like managing other promoters Um, and then I was expected to go to the clubs basically every night and that's just not who I am like I very much like being at home and so I don't think I knew (laughs) myself well enough at 18 19 no I guess like 2021 to be like 
well, this is not going to work for me because I don't, I don't like this life. Um, so I just mm. thought I'm just not happy and I don't like my life. I don't like what's happening. What can I do about this? Right. And I just thought, well, I'm never going to be younger or have fewer children or fewer mortgages than I have now. <laughs> so I'm going to go and great, do something fun. Great point. Yeah. And like Paris seemed like, you know, it's exotic. It's cool. Uh, maybe not exotic, but like it's romantic. No, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's close enough that you can come home if it all goes wrong. Um, so I went to French lessons, which it turns out just I'm not good at learning languages. I try so hard. I'm not good at it. Um, and so it is a skill in itself. Definitely. So hard. So I did like um, a TEFL course, like a teaching English as a foreign language course, which showed me how much I didn't know about language. Right. Um, and again, I think we're really finding a theme here, really understanding how language works in a way that we don't learn as native English speakers. We don't learn like what is the present continuous? When do you use it? What is the third conditional and how is it different to the second conditional? We don't mm-hmm. learn that. But I think that's been really helpful no. with me understanding how to write and understanding how to put things together. Um, and so, mm. yeah, I did my TEFL course and I went to Paris to to become an English teacher, which I did for two years. Wow. But there's another thing that I would say as a lesson there, which is really interesting to me, is the fact that you're quite young and you thought, you analysed already, okay, I'm not quite happy here. I need to do something about it. And do you know what? I can take risks because I'm young enough to take risks. Mm-hmm. And you did it. And I actually know a lot of young people at that age that would not think that way. Is that something that you always had inside you as a kind of voice to guide you? I think I've just never really felt a huge pressure. Um, so, for example, mm. my mum is a cleaner and my dad is a retired, he was a grave digger and then a um, crematorium operator. Right. Those, it's not that they didn't want me to be successful, but they would have felt that I was successful if I'd been, if I'd done all kinds of different things. Mm. It's not as though I had two parents who were bankers or doctors or lawyers or any of these things and I had a pressure to replicate that success. So obviously I think there are a lot of a lot of advantages to having parents who can sort of set you on a professional course. But that wasn't my experience. Like obviously my parents wanted me to be happy and they wanted me to be successful, but they had a much uh I guess broader view of what success would be. And I also think Mm. that um, I'm actually estranged from my family. And so I didn't feel like I had to impress anyone or I didn't have to live up to anyone's expectations Um, Mm. because I was just, I'm here on my own, forging my own path for what I want my own life to look like. And so I think that's given me the flexibility to like, do this, try that, go here, go there. Um, but um, mm. my mum is a cleaner. My dad is, or he was a grave digger and then became a crematorium operator. And so their metrics for what success is, is not like you have to be a lawyer, you have to be a doctor, you have to do all of these things. It's just like you have to be able to pay your bills and take care of yourself. Yeah. I think there's much more of like um, an emphasis on being a self-reliant person, like working hard and doing mm. your job over like, what that looks like externally and so Mm. I think that sort of gave me that freedom to to feel that flexibility of being like well I'm going to try this now. Still I would say it's extremely impressive um, because I remember being that age and finding your voice is one of the toughest thing that you have to do around that age and and um, you you mentioned the word self-reliant Um, But it takes a lot of courage to sort of say, do you know what, I'm going to try this, try that, and it's okay to fail in between in order to find the right way forward. Yeah, I guess I just didn't have any preconceived ideas of what the right way forward Mm. was. So I was just willing to give, and I think this is, this will come up like a lot of times, Um, even talking about the work I do now, none of it is planned. Mm -hmm. It's just... Right. What what feels right? What feels like something I can do well, or something I can add value to, or something that will make me 
feel satisfied I, I've never mm. like so many people That's in so podcasts lovely. or interviews or whatever are like what's next I'm like I don't know babe like I've got no idea <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. Um, I mean, that's the the key thing in life, right? To just be happy Mm. and just go with your own feelings. Um, It's great that you managed to do that at such an early age. And um, I can imagine being in Paris being quite good fun. Why did you decide to leave? Was it to do with a job? Yeah, it was actually. So I was being an English teacher and I became quite unwell. Um, which we won't go into Mm. but it sort of impeded my ability to do my job and also like I said I wasn't good at learning French and so there weren't too many professional options available to me I think that's reasonable we shouldn't prioritize (laughs) we shouldn't prioritize English as a language in non-English speaking countries and so there shouldn't have been a lot of jobs that were available to someone living in a country where you can't really speak that language well enough to do a job in it and so I thought Mm. okay by that point I guess I was like 23 24 maybe somewhere around there and I was like okay Mm. if I'm gonna be a grown-up and I'm gonna get a grown-up job I need to be somewhere where I can effectively communicate with people time to come back to the UK right and how did you find your first job well back in the UK (sighs) I don't think you're going to love it because the answer is because <laughs> <laughs> the answer is kind of by accident. <laughs> um, people hate it. <laughs> Why would I not love it? I no love it. it. Everyone hates it. When I, tell them. <laughs> um, I picked up a bit of English teaching work, kind of zero hours contracts, not really for me because I sort of need that sort of feeling that I know mm. what I'm going to do, even though I'm saying a lot of it is sort of by chance I sort of need that sort of feeling of security in my life and so I was doing a little mm. bit of English teaching like whatever um and then I got a call from a from a recruiter who was recruiting for a role at MNC Saatchi and they were like do you oh, want to yeah. come for an interview and I was like all right and that's how <laughs> I got into advertising which is not how anyone gets into <laughs> advertising and it's nonsense <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it's true. Actually, I see what you're saying. I might hate the story because I guess a lot of people, and I speak to a lot of students, you know, are really, really struggling to get into the world of advertising and you just did it by yeah. chance. I get yeah. that. It's not but, fair. So you have to tell me um, about the interview. What is it that swayed them? Oh, my God. I don't know. It was so long ago now. Also, I hated that job. So, like, also, so don't be jealous. It wasn't like a great, a great thing. Um, so, because I hadn't planned to work in advertising, and again, I know, I know how, frankly, bullshit that must be for people who are doing a degree in advertising and working really hard and trying to make opportunities for someone to say, "I just fell into it." But it is, it's mm. my truth, and I'm, I'm sorry that that is what happened. And I also know how unlikely it is for a young black woman to be invited mm. to to come in and be part of Saatchi. So I sort of acknowledge yeah. and respect that that is not a universal story. Um, yeah. But because I sort of came into it in that way, I didn't know the difference between a media agency and a creative agency. So it's like, oh, I'm going to a creative agency. It's going to be really cool. No. MNC is very ah. much planning, buying, spreadsheets, pivot tables. I still don't know what a pivot table is. I just, I don't no, want to too. find out. I don't <laughs> want to learn about what it is. Um, no, you shouldn't. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the thing for me. Um, and so, yeah, I was there and it was, it was really good in as much as it set me up in a career and it's been a really good mm-hmm. line on my CV that's been helpful. But in terms of that, again, I was the only black person, um, I think. Yeah. I think I was the only black person in the office at all while I was there. And I just didn't yeah. I just didn't like it. And I know that I'm sort of saying, like, I had this job, I didn't like it. I had that job, I didn't like it. But it's the truth. No. I, I think so many people graduate and they're like, what you're doing now, what you're doing for your degree has to be what you do for your job. And that has to be really mm. consistent. But I would really encourage people to be like, okay, maybe you don't love this. 
what element do you like? So I found that I really liked being around creative people and I really liked putting in processes to make that creative better. So that wasn't the Mm. agency for me, but I was able to be like, okay, of this of this overall thing, here is something I like. How can I distill that into the next thing that I do? Oh my god, there's so many questions in all of this. (laughs) Um, First of all, I want to just say how angry I am because this is, uh, you know, so many times you found yourself to be the only black woman in the room, and Mm. it makes me angry. Um, It shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like that in any work. Unfortunately, the world of advertising is. Still not changing quick enough, but I think it, it, they're finally um, hearing and changing a little bit. Um, I love what you said about uh, university and not going necessarily for a degree that gives you your job. I think that is a very old way of thinking. Um, these days, it's really about the skill set that you can bring to a company, and you won't know. There's no way you can know that young age exactly what you're going to do and what you're going to enjoy later on so actually being flexible and having that sort of um, analytical skill which you clearly have um, is super important because it helps you sort of find the right job which is exactly what you did yeah and I think people really um, really lament the loss of the idea of a job for life but I'm I'm really pleased mm. that I don't have to do for the rest of my life the first job I started doing. I think yeah. there's lots of advantages to that. Completely. Actually, um, I, I, as you were saying that, I was imagining you trying to sort of speak French <laughs> and continue that for the rest of your life. You wouldn't be too happy. And that's, that's the key thing. It's about being happy. Mm. So tell me, because you, you've moved a bit in the world of advertising in terms of your job titles. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. So I guess I started at MNC Saatchi in an operations capacity. Um, so working with, what was she, like the ops director maybe? Um, mm-hmm. And then I left and ended up going to a much smaller agency where I could be much more hands-on and that was in a project management role. Um, so just like, right. again, like facilitating creative, making sure that the creative people had what they need to do the jobs that they were doing and making sure that the clients got what they needed when they needed it for the money that they wanted to spend for it. So sort of being that sort of middle mm-hmm. person in that space. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, I've always done that kind of work. So from um, from an ops person to a PM person, then I found that the project management wasn't giving me the sort of creative input that I wanted, um, mm-hmm. despite not thinking of myself as a very creative person up until recently. Um I just felt like I wanted to be part of making something and doing something and having some output. And so I think that's mm-hmm. what I'm saying about like finding the bits and then just continuing to like fine tune them. So like, yeah. I didn't like all of the op stuff, but I liked some elements of it. And I took that to my next job and that next job was a project manager. And I liked the sort of structural parts of it, but wanted more of a creative input. So in my next job, I became a creative producer so a producer is like a project manager, but with more, it's not just about give me something on Thursday for five grand. It's like, give me something great on Thursday for five grand mm. and having <laughs> that sort of um, connection to the creative quality output. Um, I was able to sort of mm. um, finesse that into my next job. So it's always been about like, how do I take this thing and distill it and distill it and distill it and find the find the best thing about it for me and make that mm. a really core cool part of what I'm trying to do. So tell me, did that come through uh, subconsciously or were you consciously doing that? Were you doing like little ex- exercises to really know what you love about your job or not or just it came to you? So I'm someone who, for better or worse, really gets a lot of my self-identity through my job. And so mm-hmm. I don't spend a lot of time like sort of consciously refining or reflecting because to me and it's it's not a good way to be like any of your listeners I do not recommend <laughs> this 
um, the work I do is the person I am. And that's been really good for me in the last year or so where I've had to sort of develop an online presence. But um, so I've never had to sort of do that, like, who am I and who do I want to be and what work do I want to be or what work do I want to do? It's just always been Mm. very front and center of like my work, because again, I'm estranged from my family. My work is what makes me happy. My work is the community Mm. that I have. And so I think I've never sort of had to go through that, like, you know, journaling or really sort of self-reflective process. process. No, I've never needed to do any of that. It's Mm. just like, who am I? We're going to jump about a bit, but I would love you to sort of tell us what you've been up to in the last year or so, because I'm really keen to give a bit of context, especially when it comes to, you know, you mentioned how important it is to have creativity in your life. How did that spur on what you're doing now? So I think what I'm doing now has been the first time I have really thought of myself as a creative person, which has been a really Mm -hmm. interesting thing to come about, like in your 30s. It's been like, oh, I need to redefine how I think of myself and how I think of the work that I do and the things that I can offer. So for your listeners, I run an Instagram account, which is called um, at official millennial black. And that is a Mm. place where I share content primarily about race and racial equality, and also through an intersectional lens, looking at race and gender together and how they, how they interact. Um, And that is by necessity creative because Instagram is a visual platform and that's not mm-hmm. been my primary skill set. Um, and so this, I'm about to say this understanding later in life, can you say later in life when you're 33? I don't know. But this sort of, re- <laughs> <laughs> this sort of recontextualizing of myself um, as someone who has a creative output, I have um two books out like so much of what I do now is creative whereas so much of what I have done is creative facilitation um Mm. yeah it's been a really interesting it's been a really interesting shift and I think my understanding of developing creative processes and making life easier for people to get that that type of work out has again made it easier for me to think about how I can get that kind of Mm. work out but again it's all it's so frustrating to say it's all being by coincidence and if you're listening to this and you're thinking like will you fuck off and like make a plan (laughs) um no I can't but also if you're listening to this and thinking I don't have a plan I don't know where I want to be in two years five years six months that's fine because things will come to you and if you are I think open to opportunities and you have developed a whole range of skills that seem like they're maybe useless or unconnected you'll be surprised by the ways that they come together when the right thing comes Mm. towards you yeah absolutely it's also about leaping forward and going for it Uh, which leads me on to my question which is you know how did you start your Instagram page? Why did you become much more of an activist? Well, you're going to love this answer because it is an accident. So, <laughs> um, yes, absolutely about leaping forwards. And I think that has sort of been the thing that's been the through line in everything that I've done. I've never really had a plan mm. for where it's going to end up, but I've been good about putting myself in situations that might seem scary, that might seem intimidating, that might seem like I'm not ready for them. Because I remember like talking to people about applying for jobs and then and it, people just being like, oh, you know, I don't match this one thing on the job description. I can do all of it, but not that one thing, or I'm not ready for this. So I'm not going to apply. Mm. And just remember having these conversations with people, just being like, let them decide. Put yourself forward, yeah. and if you're not ready, they will not hire you, and that's fine. But put yourself in these situations, try these things, be open and see what happens. And so mm. I started my Instagram account, which is such a 2020-like thing to chat about, like, oh, here's why 
here's what I do on the internet. Um, <laughs> but I started my Instagram account because I um, had been a chief operating officer in an advertising agency. And so, um, as we've already discussed, advertising is um, a predominantly white, predominantly male, predominantly middle class environment, and I am none of those things. And so, I had really good relationships with people internally on my team. But I would find that mm-hmm. when um, external people, so clients or people coming for interviews or any sort of third party recruiters whatever would come they wouldn't really know what to do with me they would presume I was the person who was there to make the coffee or make the notes although I was the person who was the most senior person in that room in that space and Mm. there's nothing wrong with being the person making the making the notes or making the coffee but I had been that already and I had sort of um, developed my skill set to be broader and wider than that and that's not what I was in that space in that moment to provide yeah of course um but I don't want to I don't want to belittle that as a as a role because that's an important role and you're in that room and you're learning and you're hearing but that's not what I was in that space for Mm. and so I thought okay I need to find a book um that talks about the experience of being a black woman in leadership Mm -hmm. and so I did little bit of looking around and I found lots of books about being a woman in leadership but I couldn't Mm -hmm. find a single book like literally a single book that talked about the experience of race and how that um how that plays into the conversations that we have and I think especially in the last couple of years we've all become very comfortable acknowledging that our race plays a part in how society treats us how we move through the world that's right. But then to imagine that that is completely dropped when you step through the doors of your workplace mm. seems really unrealistic. And so I thought, right, this book doesn't exist. I need to write this book, it turns out, because again, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> turns out that's who I am as I'm sort of discovering more and more as we have this love conversation. It. I was like, okay, cool. Couldn't find it. Let's, let's, let's be the person who makes it mm. because I was doing all of this research anyway. And I thought like this research exists in really disparate, separate places. So all we need is someone to pull this together and make it one thing. And, you know, mm. being a COO, that's not, that's not a busy job. Why don't, why don't I be that person <laughs> who does that? Wow. <laughs> so I sold, I, I made a proposal for that. Um, I started working on it. And I completed that proposal and I just sat on it for like a year because I was really scared. Wow. Because when you're not doing creative work, there's not so much at stake. But when you are, Mm -hmm. suddenly this thing that you've made and that you care about, you're saying to the world, do you want this? And there's a chance the world will say, no, thank you. Thanks so much, but (laughs) no. And so I sort of sat with that for a while because, again, I didn't think of myself as this creative person. And so the idea of putting something creative that I'd made, even out to literary agents, felt really scary. But eventually I did put it out. I was able to get um, get a literary agent and get a book deal with HarperCollins. That was all really, <laughs> sounds so dismissive, doesn't it? That was all really nice. Lovely, lovely day out. No, but what's interesting is you didn't tell me what is it that made you go, I have to send that proposal. Oh, what what was like the catalyst to like yeah. stop sitting on That's it and send right. it out? Because I'd worked really hard on it. <laughs> I'd like done all this work. But it took you a year. Yeah, 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 because it's scary. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to dismiss how scary it was. I know it is. In fact, I think you encapsulated exactly how I felt when I wanted to start this podcast. I just wondered if there was something after that year, something specific, like, you know, partner or someone that just went, you need to, you need to send it. Mm. I have a really, really great, fantastic, supportive partner who is amazing. Um, and who I give so much credit for so much deservedly. Right. But this was not them. This was me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> this was me I being like, 
I just think I just stopped being scared of it. So like, I think the idea of having done a load of work and just not doing anything with it became scarier than the idea of people being like, don't want this, thank you. And so there we go. I am glad I pushed you on that question (laughs) because that is so important, but it's true. It's, I mean, I went through the exact same process, so I know. Um, but you're right. Just not being able to put it out there is more scary than just you sitting on it. So, um, that's great. Yeah. And I'd, you know, I'd spent so long on it and like, just so people know, most book proposals are word documents. I made this really Mm -hmm. involved pink and black branded as would become my signature um google (laughs) doc amazing yeah this multi-page google doc of like here's who i am here's why this matters because i just presumed that whoever received this pitch wouldn't be black and female and i was entirely Mm -hmm. right and so i think this narrative of like twice as hard for half as much like doing all of this work, doing this years and years of work to get ready, um, stood me in good stead. Mm. But also it's not a thing that everyone has to go through. So many people are successful on the back of like a Word document. And I can't say if I would have been mm. or I wouldn't have been, but my my path wasn't that. My path was doing this really involved piece of work. Um, yeah. But that shows a lot about your personality and your characteristic you'll put 110 percent in anything you you decide to do yes I have very high standards which makes me quite hard to work with but I also have high standards for myself (laughs) so I'm not just holding other people to those standards (laughs) so you've done your proposal Mm -hmm. you sent it on and then you got a response what straight away yeah so I sent it to various um literary agents and I was lucky enough to get interest from quite a few And then I was able to go to meetings and find the person who I felt I gelled best with. So I actually had agreed to work with one person before I met my my agent. Um, Mm. And I just felt like I had just such a good vibe with her and she got it um, that I had to um, sort of wriggle out of the other one to to work with her. But the reason that that is sort of uh, relevant to um, why I started the Instagram is that it felt as though at that point everyone who was getting book deals was an influencer. Everyone who was doing who who was getting book deals mm. were, had a platform, and I didn't have a platform, but I did have an advertising and social advertising background. And so I thought, okay, mm. I've worked on all of these titles, I've worked on all of these campaigns, and wouldn't it be really Sorry. I've worked on all of these titles, I've worked on all of these campaigns. And wouldn't it be really annoying if it became time to launch this book and I hadn't got the handles and someone else had them and I couldn't have them? Uh-huh. So me starting the Instagram was essentially a handle grab. Just being like, okay, <laughs> I need to I need to get these handles, I need to safeguard them, and also I need to build a community because I don't have at the moment a community of people who will feel connected to this book or who will buy this book or who will engage with this book. And so that's Mm. how the Instagram started. I didn't, again, I didn't mean for it initially to be a social justice, a racial justice, a racial equality platform. I meant for it to be Mm -hmm. a marketing channel for a piece of work I was working on. And then... amazing. Ahmed Aubrey was murdered, Breonna Taylor was murdered, George Floyd was murdered, Belly Majinga, someone spat mm-hmm. in her face and she died in the UK. Like all of these things kept yeah. happening. And so many people were talking about what is it like to be a black person? And I thought, well, we already know what it's like to be a black person. We don't need to learn that. What we need is for people mm-hmm. who aren't black people to understand what they can do to be a part of this conversation. And so I made right. a post about um, and so I made a post about allyship and what non-marginalized groups can do. And that it's so wild to say went viral because I don't feel like things go viral anymore, except like cats, maybe, or like <laughs> cats, sea shanties. Sea shanties I wasn't in expecting that. <laughs> Did you did you see how much sea shanties took off last year? 
Yes, I know. It's amazing. A no, but I remember when your post went out and it did explode. You can completely say mm-hmm. that. And it wasn't a cat video. Or- yeah, it was really unexpected. So I made that post when I had a couple of hundred followers. Not expecting it would do anything because how could it do anything when no one was there to see it? And it's really frustrating because I don't know that middle part of my own story. I don't know how it got out. I don't know who it got out to. I don't know what happened. But suddenly it was everywhere. It was on like Justin Bieber's grid, which people are like, oh, that's what Really? Happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, people are like, well, that's what happened. That's he like, he like raised you up. I'm like, he didn't tag me. He didn't, he cut off my watermark. Like, cool that it was there, but like, <laughs> that's not. That, we're not giving him the That's credit not for cool. that. He stole my work. Um, so, yeah. Wow. And again, I, the more I talk about it, the more I think there's a real through line of I just did a thing and then waited to see what would happen. <laughs> or I did a thing with no expectation that anything would ever happen from it. Mm. And then it just became something more. And that's not really useful to say to other people, but it's, it's just my experience. No, I actually think it's extremely useful because I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of emphasis at the moment. I don't know if you found, but of doing a side hustle. Everyone I know wants to do a side hustle, and they always think about the output and you know what they want from it. But actually, the best thing to do is just to do it for yourself because it's important to you. If it goes, you know, viral, brilliant. But if it doesn't, it needs to be okay yeah, with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing I've done has been with the expectation that it will lead to something more. Everything I've done has yeah. just been because I think it's the right thing to do. Whether I see it mm. and only I see it, whether I see it and my friends see it, or whether the world sees it, that's never been part of yeah. the calculation. It's just been what what is the right thing to do here how can I how can I try to do something with the with what I have that's Mm. that's sort of been what it is and what's been great is that you had your book and that you know people were reading it and being able to do something about it it's not just creating a, a platform or creating a book it's it's what they do it's what people who read it can do with it which is so important Mm, absolutely yeah, we're not, none of us are in a vacuum. We're all influencing mm. people every day, whether we mean to or not. Everything we do has an effect. And I, I think I try to be very mindful. I'm like not on, I'm not, a, no shade to anyone who is. I'm not an energies crystal person. I'm, um, but I am someone who tries to be conscious of, of what I put into the world, sort of whatever that means. Yeah. You can tell, definitely. And you mentioned creativity and how you didn't see yourself as a creative person and then suddenly you sort of pushed yourself into that uncomfortable zone, but it sort of paid off. Can you tell me a bit more about the writing process? Did you write a lot before you started your book? No. No, not <laughs> I love it. Um, I'd, I'd sort of written as a, you know, a child or a young person or like had poems published in anthologies, like, but like as a literal child, like a primary school child, <laughs> but I'd always, um, whether it's through doing like improv, not like American style, like SNL improv, um, but like doing improv- improvisational work at uni or whether that is going into a room where I speak one language and the other person speaks another language and I have to try and figure out how to communicate with them and mm-hmm. how to make them learn something in that in that time. Um, so I don't yeah. think that, no, I hadn't done a lot of writing, but I had, I think, had to spend a lot of time thinking about how to communicate with people, how to get an idea across. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. what the crossover is. Amazing. So did you enjoy it? The writing process. The process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the writing process, I think, is a lot of fun. Millennial. So I have two books, Millennial Black and Anti-Racist Ally. Mm-hmm. Millennial Black has been a real long-form writing process, um, whereas Anti-Racist Ally 
Um, and just so just so your listeners know, um, like I said, I already had sold that book to HarperCollins, which is Millennial Black, and I suddenly got this platform because I I was talking about allyship, and that allowed me to go back to HarperCollins and say, I want to take this conversation offline. Let's make another book which comes out oh, right. even before Millennial Black. And let's talk about allyship because that's what people are looking to me to talk about at the moment. And they, wow. they were able to say yes, but they also said yes, but we will need this to be finalized in nine days. So yes, you can, you can write this book, but you have nine days to write it. Are you kidding me? You wrote your book in nine days? It's quite a small book in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of little. Still though. Um, and so, yeah, just like trying to figure out how can I say the thing I want to say as quickly and efficiently as possible. That mm-hmm. was that was one really distinct, unique challenge for anti-racist ally, and that was a very mm-hmm. different process to writing Millennial Black, which, as as you mentioned, I started writing the proposal for in twenty seventeen. So that's been a process of years and years versus a really reactive process for anti-racist ally of saying, oh, these people want me to say something. Let's say it quickly. It's a very, wow. very different writing processes for the two books. Sophie, I am beyond impressed because um, <laughs> not only did you respond to what was going on right now, which is so important to just, you know, talk about these important subjects and and but the second thing that was incredible is that you pushed yourself in I can imagine it must have been really kind of uncomfortable space to just challenge yourself to reduce your your book um so it's sort of concise uh, and do it in nine days <laughs> yeah it's not how I am like none of it again like this this continual conversation None of it is what I imagined. I didn't imagine that I would have two books ever at all. Mm. I didn't imagine that my second book would come out before my first book, that this Mm -hmm. super, super quick pocketbook would come out before the book I'd spent years and years working on. I didn't imagine that my first book would really centre whiteness and white people because that's the that's the audience for anti-racist ally. I'm not teaching black people yeah. how to be anti-racist because they live they live those experiences every that's day. That's right. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of sort of mental shifting and wrangling necessary. And that's why I think I am happy and lucky to not have had a plan. Like I was really mm-hmm. really unhappy when I was younger. I didn't see myself living past 30. And so to have done means that anything I do now is a plus. Anything I do now is a bonus. And that means I can Mm. take risks. That means there's no pressure. That like it doesn't mean that everything is entirely easy, but it does mean Mm -hmm. that if I can do anything now that is good or beneficial or advantageous Mm -hmm. I'm gonna try to do that because it's all like a bonus round it's all just additional (laughs) stuff I didn't think I was gonna have Mm. wow I I really want to pause there because that gives me a really good insight in how your your brain works and how you know you mentioned at the beginning um, about your the book um, and about how you know, you sat on it for a whole year and then it was worse not releasing it, um, that kind of feeling. Um, and then now I can see how if you've got that as a backdrop, that anything that you do now is a bonus no matter what. Like I'm going to try some so, stuff and it's going to work. And I'm going to try some other stuff and it's not going to work. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have tried. I'm going to have tried to do, have done something that I think is important. And it doesn't mm. matter if it doesn't work. And that, and that, I can imagine, takes away from the fear, right? Because because mm. you just have to try it. And then if it, the failure just is not as bad as what you imagined in your head beyond past 30. No. 
like any failure is just like well I tried it and that's fine like there's no and again this sort of like I didn't see anything beyond for myself beyond 30 is nothing that I've spoken about anywhere to anyone except like in Mm. in private personal conversations but I think it's important to acknowledge that that was very much entirely what I saw for myself and Mm. that that really changes the concept and the context of what success looks like relatively I think it's so important that you shared that story and I hope for anyone that's sort of listening they can really understand your kind of lens and how important is it is to just try thing. I mean, it's really easy to say because sometimes when you fail, it's not nice and we don't want to diminish that in any way. But um, also trying can be fun. It's not, it doesn't have to be hell, which is what you've been talking about. Yeah, there's so much fun in and like again, this might be a sort of my operational mind. There's so much. Now I'm about to say, I know it's not. I know it's not a cool thing to say. There's so much fun in process. <laughs> <laughs> but I just mean, hey, I love a process. There's so much fun in figuring things out. There's so much fun in having a go. And there've been things that I've tried that just don't work, and that's fine. Like that doesn't matter. That's not. That's not who I am. That that one thing that didn't mm. work isn't doesn't mean that I don't work it just means that we can just try something different next time and that's fine no and I think that's so important and and also you know you've got a lot of self-belief and that's the right way to do it and I think um and it shows through everything that you're doing whether it's your Instagram channel or your books I was going to ask you the question what's next because I always like to to imagine what the people I interview will be like in sort of five ten years time but you don't know so this is a redundant <laughs> question yeah I mean I don't know I've got no idea I like I started a job a couple of weeks ago that I never oh you can hear my cat my cat's wanting to come in so I'm actually getting my house <laughs> renovated at the moment and so my I'm recording this from inside a wardrobe which my cat very much <laughs> wants to be inside of as well um <laughs> but no no I've got no idea like jobs come and go and like platforms come and go and like books are scary because you write something and that doesn't come and go that's always like no printed there forever um but if you'd said to me a year ago what would your life be like now I wouldn't have said this and so Mm -hmm. I've got no idea but I think more than any other point in my life up to now I'm excited to find out that sounds good. That sounds like that's the main thing, right? To be excited to find out. Yeah. So my very last question, which is you've been giving some great advice throughout, um, seriously, but what would be your last final parting advice to anyone listening into your story? I think that for so long, not knowing what I wanted to do, not having the ability mentally to make a long-term plan because it didn't seem realistic for me, So I think for me, there's been so much that I haven't known how to do or haven't known what I wanted to do. And I haven't been able to make long term plans because I didn't feel like a realistic thing for me and my expectations of my life. And Mm. I just really want to be clear that not having a plan is fine. And if you are open to opportunities and if you're open to just seeing what you can make happen then really amazing things that you can't even imagine now are really really possible wow well on that note I hope loads of people uh, listening to this were like right this is it this is my calling to start something I hope so too well, Sophie, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. I enjoyed our conversation so much. If no one listened to this, I'm very happy, as we were just talking about. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Way Up. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please look out for more empowering interviews in the weeks to come. 
Now, I have a couple of special favors to ask. Firstly, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. It really helps generate exposure for the podcast and allows a wider audience to get access to these really important topics. Secondly, if you know of anyone else that would enjoy this show and benefits from the topics I cover, then do please share the podcast. Um, By sharing this with just a couple of people, it will just help spread the good message and hopefully support the women this podcast was designed to reach. Finally, if you can follow This Way Up podcast or One Word on Instagram, you'll get notified of future episodes. And the idea is that together we can build a powerful community and hopefully start to change the creative industry. That's it from me. Until next time.